Yes, what's up, my friends? Welcome back to the Pilgrimage Podcast. My name is Joshua Luke Smith, and this is a space for the curious, creative, and contemplative soul. It's good to be together again. We're about to jump into episode three of the series in the company of failures and fools. first time listening it's a delight to have you here welcome thank you for joining us and if it is your 37th time man because this is episode 37 if it's your 37th time joining us thank you for sticking around and joining us on the path i have to apologize i initially said that this new series was going to drop every week that hasn't happened i have moved country in the last couple of weeks we're now in canada and uh who knew but moving country it's quite a big deal and so it's taken a bit of time to get things settled and all that stuff so we're back on track now i'm back in front of the microphone and these episodes are hopefully going to be coming out more regularly speaking of there is an opportunity that you guys have to get involved in the process of what i do here in the making of this podcast and it's called the pilgrimage co it's a online gathering an online space to dive deeper into some of the ideas and the subjects and the conversations that we're having it's also my means of sustaining the work that i do and my hope is as a result make it a little bit more regular and consistent because i'd love to be able to do that it's called the pilgrimage co and when you sign up Man, there's just a ton of content that you get every month. I'm talking about a whole sub-podcast of this one, a video podcast where I interview people, friends, heroes of mine, um, about their life, about their stories, about the work that they do. The one that we dropped this month um, is with John Mark McMillan, the storyteller, the songwriter, the prophet, the poet who I love and admire, and that was a great conversation. We also have meditations on there. We have blog posts on there. We have uh, gatherings, and we actually have just dropped today the digital retreat that I hosted last year. Or was it earlier this year? I think it was earlier this year. It's called Speaking to the Chaos, and it's two hours of reflections around getting free from that which hinders us in the expression of our truest and purest sound and uh, I'd love to have you join us on this retreat so all you got to do is sign up at the pilgrimage.co and uh, you'll find out more but just to whet your appetite here's the trailer if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it did it make a sound I want to spend some time together and explore what it is to silence shame find the sound of our souls and speak into the chaos because yes it matters i'm gonna share with you my story and insights from the last 10 years we are gonna break those cycles of shame embrace our unique sound and we are going to write and declare personal manifestos infusing purpose and meaning into the very fibers of our existence we all seek in one way or another to be heard, to be perceived and acknowledged. And could it be that there is a sound like the falling weight of an old oak tree that exists within us? It is time to speak into the chaos. Let's do this. Oh man, I loved, I loved filming that project so much. It, it's, it's like 10 years of reflections in a few hours and we filmed it in Wisconsin in this cabin 
surrounded by woodland. It was snowing. The fire was roaring. It was picturesque. It was it was vibey. And when I was doing it, though I was delivering it to a camera with my friend Dom on the other side of it, I was imagining you lot in this big lounge sharing in the content, sharing in the story, sharing in the conversation. And so when you watch it, when you dive into it, I hope that you feel that. I hope that you feel you're joining us by the roaring fire, warming yourself and your soul in all the things that we talk about and go through. And I would love to hear from you. You can hit me up um, on the Pilgrimage Co. thread. It's via Patreon. You can hit me up on socials, Joshua Luke Smith or uh, thepilgrimage.co. I'd love to hear from you if you watch it. I'd love to know how it impacts you and how you feel about it and where you go from it. But without further ado, let's dive into episode three of this new series in the company of failures and fools. And hey, just to recap, just to recap on the first two episodes, because we've already we've already taken some ground. We've already gone on a bit of a journey together. The first episode, we're looking at our origin story and not just our personal origin story, but the origin story of our humanity. Right. And we dive into the beginning story of Eden, Genesis. And the question was asked, like, what happens? How does it impact you? If your earliest memory is one of blessing and one of affirmation, how does it change the narrative if your beginning is showered and defined by goodness? What if you began this process, you began this journey, your story began with a blessing? An affirmation. And I know many of us, most of us haven't had that, didn't have that. And so that whole episode is exploring the way that, you know, redefining our origin redefines our present realities. And we looked at the difference between Adam and the way that Adam is conveyed in the story of Genesis and Jesus later on. And this idea that Adam was unrestrained in his desire for power and Jesus revealed his power in his ability to be restrained. And there's this beautiful juxtaposition in how we choose to live our life, whether we live in response to our urge and our desire for ego-driven power, or whether we live our lives in response to a deeper knowing and a smaller, stiller voice that leads us into restraint and stillness and gentleness and self-control. That's, that's episode one. Episode two, we're talking about that which is hidden cannot be healed. And so much of our feeling of failure comes from our running and our hiding and our desire to cover up what we don't want to be defined by. But the reality is the more that we cover up, the more that it does define us because that which is hidden can't be healed. So the pain lingers and the pain permeates through everything else that we do. And then, like we talked about in the story of Moses, a day comes where that dormant or that seemingly dormant pain erupts into this aggressive violent volcano of shame and torment and unrestrained emotion and attitude and it has a far deeper and bigger impact so that's episode two check that out episode three oh i'll spend some time on this one we're looking at these different stories of people in the Hebrew scripture. Why? Because it helps us feel less alone in our story and it gives some shape and language to what we're living and our experiences. Simply put, it puts us in the company of others who have spectacularly failed and fallen down and looked like fools. And so the first story, we looked at Adam. The second story, we looked at Moses. And today I want to look at a man called Samson. And you might know that name. You might have heard the story of Samson throughout, I don't know, 
Sunday school experiences or just like culturally, Samson is this heroic figurehead in the Hebrew kind of conscious. And there, I mean, there's so much named after Samson from gyms to like military units. Samson has this almost kind of immortalized superhero kind of feeling about him. But Samson is a story of failure. Samson, Samson is a tragedy. It's a tangled, troublesome tragedy. It's like a Greek tragedy. It's just, it's devastating. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, I once read the story of Samson and reflected upon the story of Samson and I wept. I actually cried. I cried in response to this, this biblical story written in context thousands of years ago. Um, it, it's written in a time where Israel was without a king, there wasn't any kind of central authority. It was wild and rugged and reckless. And in those times, it's, it's a book called Judges in the Old Testament. And in those times, various people, men and women, would rise up and be this kind of heroic figure for the nation that brought about justice and what they believed to be God's will for them. At a time where Israel was was weak and was surrounded by neighboring nations like um, Canaan, Moab, Ammon, and the, the Philistine army that would take advantage of them and, you know, torment them. And out of these stories arose these figures that were these kind of beacons of hope. And one of them was Samson, but it's so ironic because as we're going to get into, there's so little of Samson's story that seems heroic, which is what makes it so fascinating to me. And I say this nearly on every episode, but if you're already switching off because I'm talking Bible stuff, stay with me, my friend. Stay with me. I know it's complicated. I know there might be some trauma in there. I know you might be feeling triggered, and I know it might be a complex thing to even talk about the Bible, but stay with me because the Bible is this eclectic, diverse, ancient, and strange book that has this sacred inspiration running through it, and it it connects us to our human story and the way that forever humanity has related to God, you know, coming to this unbelievable climax in the story of Jesus, which you've heard me talk about time and time again. Stay with me, all right? And I hope you might get something from this story of Samson that you haven't heard before, not because I'm bringing some completely original um, perspective on it, but because, I don't know, perhaps how it might relate to your story in a kind of unique way. And this this story is strange. <laughs> it's ancient, it's it's poetic, and it is strange, but it's also very familiar. The, the tale of Samson is a tale of self-sabotage. And honestly, that's something I know all too well, and perhaps you do as well. Why is it that I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. Why is it that I keep going back to places that trap me? Why is it that I allow myself to exist in cycles of behavior that harm me or worse, harm other people? Why is it that I seem to walk roads that lead me away from that sense of liberation, of freedom and wholeness? That's what this story is all about. And I think along the way, you'll find perhaps some familiar uh, perspectives to your own. I feel like if there was a film director to truly deliver Samson as a feature film, 
it has to be Tarantino. This this story is violent. This story is chaotic. It's lustful. It's intense is the word. It's intense. So in this time, it's, it's in a book called Judges and it's chapters 13 through 16. I'm not going to read it all. It's just too much text, but I'm going to I'm going to go through some points in the story that I think relate to our story and relate to our experience of failure and foolishness in a pretty specific way. I'm going to I'm going to tell you this story has gotten into me. It's like it has enlightened me, it has helped me, it has provoked me, it has deeply deeply challenged me at the core of who I am and I hope I pray it might do the same for you. So the story begins with a woman who is barren. We don't know her name. We never find out her name. In fact, there's a few women in this story and there's only one woman whose name we actually find out. You might already know it, but I'm not going to ruin the punchline. We don't know this woman's name. She's barren. She can't have children. And one day she meets this angel who tells her, you are going to have a child. But this child is like this divine instrument this divine tool of God's judgment who is going to be born within you and so she's given this incredibly like powerful intense provocative message from the angel that is both such breakthrough and hope delivering in the sense that she's going to have a child but it also has this incredible baggage and pressure attached to it that this child that's going to be born to you is going to be used by God to like redeem and free the nation from the people group that were the Philistines that were causing the Hebrew people a whole lot of problems and this woman lives basically on the frontier she lives in the area where bordering the the Philistines basically the most vulnerable place in a kind of geographical um, sense and yeah so she's being told as a barren woman from you will come forth this this savior type figure and it's it's mysterious it's it's deeply mysterious it has a mythic kind of edge to it if you've read any of read any of the greek tragedies it has this kind of like greek mythic language to it this child will be born and he will free the people from their burdens and he will be a tool of divine judgment and retribution and so right from the beginning you're like okay we're in for a wild ride here this story is going to get crazy and it does she runs back and she tells her husband and man if you dig into the commentaries and the rabbinic kind of understanding of this it gets even more complex because within a few verses of the first chapter you start to get a sense of the the complexity and the the difficulties within their marriage of what it would have been for for a man and a woman to not have been able to bear a son and to find out they are going to bear a son. But guess what? The son that's coming is divinely conceived. So it's a, it's a child to be born to a couple, but it doesn't feel like it's their child. And there's all these nuances in the language that kind of give a nod to some of these tensions. For example, when the woman tells the husband um, about the interaction that she's had with the angel she misses some details and adds some details and she's talking about how the child needs to be set apart to become a Nazarite which was this this kind of deeply 
disciplined vocation for a for a man to adopt and unlike a monk it didn't mean total sort of separation from society but it meant that you would walk with these kind of nuances to your life you couldn't be around dead people you wouldn't drink alcohol and so on and so forth and for one of them it was um you can't cut your hair which of course was one of samson's attributes but in her telling to her husband about this interaction she's had she leaves certain details out and add some details in she says to him this will be his vocation until his dying day which isn't said to her through the through the words of the angel and that's such a small and seemingly fleeting thing but because of where the story goes it's almost right at the beginning of samson's life there's this kind of tragic sort of prophetic word that is spoken over him by his mother and there's a reason I'm kind of spending a bit of time here this is his origin story for a couple that are barren and can't have a child to find out you are going to have a child but inherently this child isn't yours is both wonderful and utterly heartbreaking it's as if within her womb where she was expecting to cultivate something so intimate and familiar she's understanding she's going to be cultivating something distant strange and unknown right she's told he's going to be a nazarite which means he's going to be set apart he's going to be unlike other men and so already she has this disconnection there's a sense of the child that she's bringing into the world isn't really hers and not only that but the life that he's going to be living is so separate to everything that she's known and the way that she would brought up her children and it doesn't take long till we get to the point of Samson being a man and being born and we have to remember this origin because we have to acknowledge that at the kind of the foundation of who Samson was there's a feeling of separateness and that really manifests itself throughout his life due to coming verses and chapters there's a sense of his being separate his being different his being complex his being misunderstood have you ever felt like that have you ever felt like at the core of who you are at the crux of your being there's something other about you it's as if Samson was orphaned from the moment he was born. Do you get me? It's like the parents he was he was given, he was taken from. It's like for the mother and the father, the child that they were gifted, they were robbed, because what they were given was never really truly going to be theirs. And there's a bit of a kind of a biblical tradition to that idea from Hannah and Samuel to Elizabeth and John to um, Mary and Jesus the coming of Jesus where there's almost this kind of surrogate um, posture for a woman beholding something that God is doing and in different kind of ways those stories have a thread together but never more complex than with Samson it's as if from the beginning from the beginning of his life there's a sense of strangeness and otherness about him and so the first kind of, the first idea that we get that Samson is truly different is 
where we're told that the spirit of God comes upon him, like the anointing of God, this destiny that is upon him um, manifests. And the first thing that happens for Samson isn't some violent, uh, justice-driven kind of ambush upon the neighboring armies. It's he falls in love. He falls in love. He finds a woman, and check this out, she's a Philistine. She belongs to the very people that Samson was born to kind of avenge and attack and save his people from. He falls in love with her. And and his parents are kind of, they're shocked and dismayed, and they're like, no, like, why could you not have chosen someone from our tribe? Could you not have chosen someone like us? And it says, Samson said, she is right in my eyes. And then there's this nod from the writer to say, he fell in love with her because there was a plan at work that through that kind of relationship, Samson would avenge the people through violence towards the Philistines. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, this is getting crazy. Yeah, this is getting crazy. We're talking about a story that's thousands of years old. Stay with me. This has so much to do with us. Samson is a story that is a story of self-sabotage. And I don't think that there's any experience like self-sabotage, which gives someone, I'm talking about myself here, that gives someone such a sense of failure and such a sense of disconnection from such a core part of who they are. You know, this is Samson's story. And so Samson falls in love with this woman. And that to me is interesting, that the first kind of instinct he has when filled with the spirit of God for his divine work is to actually be drawn to a woman to be fall to fall in love and his parents' response is just like why can't you be like everyone else you know like oh do you, is this is this really what you're gonna do you're gonna separate yourself even further you a Hebrew you're gonna marry a Philistine woman and then we're told about the the journey that he goes on with his parents to I guess introduce them to her and this is a fascinating journey you might remember this part of the story he's on his way and Samson seems to take a little detour because they approach a vineyard and as a Nazarite he can't have alcohol and a vineyard is the origin of wine so he takes a detour I think to get around the vineyard and the story tells us that he's confronted by a roaring lion what does samson do does he cower and run away like every other human would confronted by this majestic yet violent and powerful beast no samson tears the lion limb from limb with his bare hands he kills the lion himself all right now it's an ancient mysterious story so it can just be like all right he killed a lion but just think about it a man kills a lion And perhaps it's at this point that Samson is truly confronted with what is within him. We haven't heard anything up until this point of Samson acknowledging his strength, this God-given strength. And in acknowledging his strength, perhaps acknowledging his destiny as this divine tool of retribution and kind of military focus, right? Because he doesn't tell his parents about it. He just joins them back on the path. He doesn't say anything. Like imagine doing something like that. And you don't tell anyone. Hey, by the way, I just just met a lion on the path. And I live to tell the story. How did you do that? Well, I I killed it. 
I tear it apart with my hands. He doesn't say anything. He keeps it a secret. And this is the first thing I really want to suggest about this idea of self-sabotage, which to me is one of the most vulnerable and poignant like realities of failure, the feeling of failure, self-sabotage. Because when we when we sabotage ourselves, right? When we get in our own way, when we prevent ourselves from doing that which feels like is our purpose or our dream or perhaps just the right thing or just the best thing for us on a given day, it could be as simple as, I don't know, what you eat that day or, or perhaps doing some exercise, something so basic and um, for your body all the way to pursuing a career in something. When we do the opposite, to that which we know would profit us and help us and prosper us. The sense of failure, the sense of fatigue and disappointment that comes with that, I don't think is like anything else. And I see in the life of Samson this tale of self-sabotage. And this moment's critical. It's as if Samson, in killing the lion is confronted by the strangeness he feels within him. And I want to suggest this about self-sabotage. The saboteur, the one within us that seems to constantly get in our own way, I think could be renamed as the stranger. The part of ourself that feels least familiar. And I wonder if Samson, in what seems like a heroic act, to any one of us, something worth boasting about, something, you know, that you would use to impress others is actually something that's terrifying for him because it only confirms the level to which he's unlike everyone else. And in that moment, the realism of feeling strange, the acknowledgement of there being something within you that is different is so clear. And so he doesn't tell his parents. And then we're told that they meet the woman and then him and his father return a few days later. And as they're on their way down, it says, Samson turns aside to look at the carcass of the lion, right? So he's with his dad. And once again, he takes a little detour. He turns aside just to see the carcass of the lion. And in the lion, he sees this swarm of bees Right? And so the bees have made honey in the carcass of the lion. And so he scoops out this honey into his hands. And this, the text actually says he, he went on eating as he walked. So you got to imagine it, right? This massive hulk of a man walking down the path in the country, licking his fingers, licking off the honey from his fingers. The honey born of the carcass of a lion that only a few days earlier he himself slayed, right? And he returns to his father and his mother. Sorry, his mother's still with him at that point. And, and he gives them some. And they eat it. But a text says that he did not tell them where it came from. He didn't tell them that he, scra he scraped it from the carcass of a lion that he had killed. Again, this is, this is a rich moment in the, in the text. And there's a lot in it. He turns aside to go and look at the lion. He turns aside... I wonder to almost put himself in the way of his own violence and his own terror and his own strength to see for himself, like, was it really true? Did I really do that? Am I really capable of that? And so he goes and he looks at it 
And I wonder if it's both out of ego, like a trophy, as much as it is out of feeling terrified and and just kind of, I, I need to see this again to believe it. And then he sees that there's this swarm of bees and there's something sweet within it. And I wonder, I wonder if then he's confronted with this whole act being a metaphor for his own life. Like within this lion, under the manes and the muscle of the lion, there is this tenderness and this sweetness within his own self underneath the muscles and the uncut manes of his own hair there's something sweet there's something tender there's something beautiful and he goes and he gives the honey to his parents but he doesn't tell them where it came from and again i wonder like i wonder if this is samson's attempt to reach out to his parents and say i'm sweet i'm tender under all of this, this prophetic weight that's on my life, this destiny of this being this military tool for a nation, I'm a child and I'm longing to be known and I'm longing to be seen, but I can't even tell you where this honey comes from because if I do, it will only affirm the sense of who I am in your eyes as this this he-man, this Hulk, but I want you to know how sweet and tender I am and I wonder if if you can even relate to that, where you have built this version of yourself so often and so consistently that it's so difficult to convince anyone of you being anything but it. And deep down, where there's all this complexity, there's also this simplicity of this is who I really am. And all I've really wanted in my whole life is to be known and to be seen and to be acknowledged in such a simple and almost with Samson, such a, a childlike way, right? And so the story moves on and he, he marries the woman and man, it gets, it, gets, it gets even more intense from this point because when you get married, well, two families join, right? And if we look at Samson's life from the beginning to this point, there's a lot of complexity in his family. My wife and I have this saying, family is where the stuff is. Family is like Monica's cupboard in Friends. Man, that's where everything is. And look, all the good stuff, all the glory, all the beauty, all the wonder, but also all the hardships and all the trigger points and all the trauma and all the memories that still linger. Family is where all the stuff is. And Samson is a son who was born an orphan. And he actually, it seems, has never felt more orphaned than when around his parents. He's around his parents, but he doesn't feel known. He's around his parents, but he doesn't feel connected. He doesn't feel tethered. And so he goes on to do so much in his life, which seems to be this kind of reaching out for tethering and for connection. And honestly, he gets married and, and it all comes up to the surface. See, they, they have this feast, like seven-day feast. And right at the beginning, Samson says to the crowd of people, he says, I have a riddle for you. Like out of nowhere, I have a riddle. And if you, if you can work out the riddle, then I'm going to get everybody here some beautiful new clothes. That's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hook you all up. I'm going to dress you all up if you can figure out this riddle. And so he goes on and he shares this riddle. 
You might have heard of it. He says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Let me read it again. He says, out of the eater comes something to eat and out of the strong comes something sweet. All right, what's happening here? Samson, what are you doing, bro? Like, you just got married. You're meeting all the family, all the friends, and you immediately put yourself not only as the center of attention, but so close to the edge of being exposed in the very thing that you're keeping secret. What are you doing here? What are you doing, Samson? Remember, Samson was born a divine tool of retribution inflicted upon the people of the Philistines. That's, that's, the, that's the prophetic call on his life. And now he's married a Philistine and surely the worst thing that he could do is let everybody know just how inhuman he is. And he just killed a lion. And yet the first thing he does when he's standing in front of everyone is he brings them to the edge of this most delicate and intimate secret about himself. Why? Why are you about to ruin everything? Why are you about to uh, put everything that you desire and long for in jeopardy? I.e., what do you long for? You long for the connection with a person, with a woman right here who is your wife, a connection that isn't rooted in some, you know, great, grandiose, divine destiny, but rooted in intimacy and being known. Why are you about to ruin that? And a thought that I have around this idea of self-sabotage is, well, if the saboteur is the stranger, if it's the part of you that feels unknown, unseen, and unfamiliar, Perhaps we put ourselves in situations of chaos and calamity because we're edging closer and closer to the wound for which we desire the most amount of healing. And, and rather than go on that journey of healing, perhaps because, well, out of naivety, we're not even fully aware of the wound or out of willful ignorance it's too painful to go there we get closer through acts of self-destruction that would inch us closer back to that point that point of origin pain samson's point of origin pain is feeling like he doesn't belong and the first thing he does after getting married being tethered and belonging is expose himself, potentially expose himself for all the reasons that he is so other. And so everyone tries to work out his riddle and they, they can't work it out. And so the next thing that they do is they, uh, they ask the wife. They say, find out for us. Like Samson immediately puts this pressure on his marriage and he's just got, he just got married. So they go to him. So she comes to him and she's like, tell me, tell me the riddle. And she's desperate. Tell me the riddle. And he says this thing to her. Check this out. Check this out. I feel like Sigmund Freud would be all over this. He says, behold, I have not even told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? Oh, my days. Now, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish custom right from the beginning is a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife. And yet Samson says on his wedding day or in the days that, that just followed, he says, I'm not telling you something that I haven't told them. 
So he immediately puts a wedge between him and his wife, which ironically is the same wedge that he's always felt between him and his parents. The riddle brings people to the edge of fully knowing him. But it's not an invitation of warmth and intimacy. It's actually an invitation of sabotage and destruction. He, he only amplifies his sense of disconnection through these actions. So she keeps coming back and she's weeping to him. She's weeping to him. She presses him so hard. Please tell me, please tell me. She, she, she asks him every day of their wedding feast. Their whole wedding feast is defined by this. You ever been around someone? Well, let's get a little more personal. You ever feel like someone who makes everything about them? I mean, bruv, Samson, it's your wedding. And your wedding feast has been defined by the disconnection that you set up on your wedding day. Your, this whole time of celebration has been turned into a time of desperation and disconnection. It's like the only way you want to be known is through animosity and anguish and frustration. That's where you feel safest, Samson, it would seem. And so he, he tells her the riddle. He tells her the riddle because she's pressing him so hard. And so the men that he, he, he originally gave the riddle to come up to him and they say, hey, Samson, what's sweeter than honey and what's stronger than a lion? And he says to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. If you had not, if you had not pressed my wife, you wouldn't have found it out. He even answers, he even, he even describes his wife and their actions in riddle and in metaphor. I mean, I will give it to him. He's an artist and he's a poet, but he is a, he is a tortured artist. And what's the next thing he does? Well, he goes down to the town and he kills 30 men to get the new clothes, the linen that he promised them if they had figured it out. And look, you can read it. Um, you can read it with a, with a perspective that, you know, this was all God's plan you know, for Samson to kill those people. But I don't want to, I don't want to take Samson out of a story like that. You know, I don't want to, I don't want this story to be void of Samson's intricacy and the delicate nature that this man so clearly had about him. It, it seems that this story, yes, is about a man that has this, this divine national destiny, but it's also the story of a hurting, tortured soul that struggles to hold on to anything good. And I relate to that. I think we all do in some way or another. We all, we all relate to it. And so he kills all these men because they have um, worked out the riddle and he needs to get hold of some linen. And what's the next thing that he does after the riddle? He does what I think a lot of us do do and have done he, he runs away he goes home back to his parents um back to where he knows and after a few days he's cooled down you know he's been feeling he feels betrayed he feels broken he feels exposed because they worked out the riddle not in the way that he wanted them to but because actually he cracked and uh he comes back and this oh, this is where it's sad it's this is where it's tragic he comes back and he's got a goat i guess like a peace offering and he goes and he's got plans to be with his wife and to make love and to reconnect. And he gets there 
And he finds out, stay with me. He finds out that his wife has been married to his best man. You heard that correctly. And so his father won't let him go into the like house where his wife is. And he's like, I thought you hated her. But hey, my other daughter is available. And now Samson is furious. Samson is furious. And so he says, this time I shall be innocent to the Philistines. In, in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson goes and catches, stay with me, 300 foxes and he ties them together and he sets them on fire and he lets them loose through the vineyards. <sighs> There's so much in this. It's a, it's a wild and chaotic act, chaotic act, but it is prophetic and it's poetic. Let me tell you why. He gets foxes. He catches wild foxes and then he ties them together and he sets them on fire to run through a vineyard. Well, the vineyard destroys the crop, obviously, but it also, you know, is this display of what he is unable to have. It's that which is out of his reach. The wine, the vine, the vineyard is something that is, you know, prohibited for him. So there's that. He gets two foxes and he ties them together. Well, he could just get one fox and set it on fire. 300 foxes and set them on fire. But instead he gets 300 foxes and ties them together. So you've got 150 pairs of foxes tied together. Why? Why is it always so complex with Samson? Because I think everything that Samson is doing from the murder of the, the murder, yeah, it is a murder, from the murder of the lion to the tying of the foxes is a physical representation of something that's going on within him. Out of the eater comes something sweet, right? Out of the muscle and the mane, there is something sweet and delicate. Samson's desperate to be known. The foxes tied together. Well, now you have two foxes on fire, two foxes, two individual two expressions of one thing tied together burning and one can never be separate from the other but one only leads the other into more destruction and turmoil and this is Samson deep down in Samson there is the part of him that just wants tethering and tying together to something that feels intimate and real and true. And then there's the part of him that just wants violence and destruction and riddles and complexity and rejection. And I'll leave you before you can leave me. And they're in the same place together at the same time constantly. And this vineyard going up in flames set alight by foxes screaming into the night as they burn for Samson, I think, is this poetic, prophetic image of himself. And if we could humble ourselves to look closely at the text, we might actually see ourselves within it. That sometimes I feel like I'm pulled in two different directions. And both directions is an attempt to get away from myself or at least a turmoil within. And it's painful. And it feels like I'm on fire and it feels like I'm just destroying everything around me. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you hear where I'm going with this? So what happens next? Well, the Philistines, the people, they're pissed off. Their vineyards have been ruined and they're angry. And when they find out who did it and why he did it, they avenge fire with fire. 
and they burn the father of Samson's bride. They hold him responsible because he allowed his daughter to be married to a different man, which Samson took his betrayal and, right? So now Samson's father-in-law has been murdered. What does Samson do? In return, Samson, violence for violence, and he kills those Philistines. Do you, do you see what I'm saying with the Tarantino reference, right? So now he's killed them. So guess what happens next? The Philistines are like, we're coming after you again. Samson has already fled, and he's staying in this cave in the cleft of a rock, and he's staying in the land of Judah. Now Samson wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Dan. Um, so he's now staying in an area that is not familiar to him, it's not his people, and this point comes where 3,000 men from this tribe of Judah, 3,000 men from the land of Judah come to Samson, and they're like, listen Samson, you're staying in our area, and now the Philistines are coming here to get you, and do you not realize that they're ruling over us? Do you, do you not realize that you're putting us in danger? You ever felt like you've done that? Like, the self-sabotage, it hasn't just affected you, it's actually now crept out and is affecting the people around you, like your loved ones, the people closest to you. Does it feel like just because people are around you, they get hurt? I know this is deep and I, I know this might be painful here, but I'm just, I'm just trying to get somewhere, you know? Does it ever feel like you are the root cause for other people's pain? And, and you want to push them away because you feel like the closer you are to me, the more likely you are to get hurt. You know, there's this time where Kara and I, we were just dating, we weren't engaged yet. And she won't mind me telling you this story because we talk about it all the time now. And we laugh about it. But it was real. You know, we, we went away on holiday with my family for the first time. And Kara being around my family was a very new experience for her. The culture of my family, the type of family that we are was just a new experience for her. And it brought up a lot. And there was this this uh, this moment where we were we were in Spain and I couldn't find her anywhere. We were staying at this house in Spain. I couldn't find her. Asking my family, like, have you seen Kara? And they're like, no. There was this woodland around our family um, where we were staying, this wood. And so I went looking in the woods and I found her in the woods. And I was like, babes, what are you doing? Why are you out here in the woods? And she was crying and she said to me, I, I, I didn't want to be around me. So I just... I felt like you guys wouldn't be, want to be around me, which wasn't true. It wasn't the case, but she was just confessing that's how she felt. And she felt unfamiliar. She felt strange. She felt other. She felt like her presence was actually causing something disruptive. It wasn't the case, but she felt like that. And perhaps you felt like that as well. Perhaps there's evidence for it. Perhaps it's real. We we had a friend who... um who would stay with us and he unfortunately was addicted to a very very uh damaging drug and he would come and go out of our house out of our family home and would try so hard to to, to take him to to rehab and to for him to get rehabilitated and he would he would go so far and then he would do something incredibly self-destructive, which inevitably had a real impact on our family because we were so close. And, and when I look at when I look at the story of Samson, I see some similarities here, you know. And, I, and, and, and these these men, the tribe of Judah, I hear that that voice of people close to us 
when we are at our weakest and at our most self-destructive, I, I hear that voice, you know, like, do you not realize that this is having an effect on us now? And um, so they say to him, we're going to tie you up and we're going to take you to the Philistines. And it's so strange what happens next because Samson's tone changes and he says to them, okay, but do you promise not to attack me? As if he's afraid. What's he doing here? It's as if he's, it's as if he's trying to distance himself from his actual capability. Do you know what I mean? It's as if he's trying to like be a stranger to himself again. He knows that he is the power amongst these men, even 3,000 of them, to not be at all afraid. He has the capability to do whatever he wants. And yet, the familiarity with that strength is what makes him feel so other. And so to them, he's like, oh, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. And so they tie him up with rope. Uh, they tie him up with rope. I'm doing a little speech marks right here because later on in the story, we find out that Samson can break through fresh new rope like it's a tiny piece of string. So this is all an act. This is all theater. He's like, oh no, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. Oh no, you tied me up. Nah, he's a, this is an act. This is almost an attempt to feel normal. To feel like a normal man who could be so easily taken prisoner. And what they do is they take him to the Philistines and poetically, as you're about to find out, this, this place is called um, the, the place of the jaw, right? And Samson, prophetically, poetically, picks up the jaw of a donkey, the jawbone of an ass. And though there's 1,000 Philistine men standing before him, he snaps out the ropes and he kills them all. And after this murderous, violent act, he says some poetry. He goes, with the jawbone of a donkey, heap upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. And then, and then Samson looks to the sky and he prays. And he says, I'm thirsty. He says to God, I'm thirsty. You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst? I'm pausing here because it's actually, it's kind of moving. This is the first point in the scripture that we really hear Samson reach out to God. He doesn't ask for the strength to kill the Philistine men. He doesn't ask for the strategy to burn down the vineyards. He doesn't ask for the courage to kill the lion. He asks for some water. It just feels like he becomes a little boy again. That when he actually looks to God, he isn't a he-man and a hulk. He's a little boy that needs a glass of water. And again, it's that, it's that familiar, tender innocence that is deep down within him, beneath all the muscle and beneath the mane. There's this little kid longing to be known and to be held and to be cared for and nurtured something that it seems like he never had or was always so distant god responds by opening a rock effectively and water gushing out and he drinks it and he's revived and then the very next thing he does is he goes down to gaza to spend the night with a prostitute a 
could this man be any more complex? I mean, there's, I mean, I think your minds are probably going right now. You know, there's so much in this. Like, he calls out to God like a little boy, and then the next thing he does is this pseudo attempt for intimacy. The, the thing about, the thing about his pursuit of a prostitute is, well, it's the entanglement of intimacy and connection with a deep sense of anonymity being unknown it's an act of knowing and being unknown at the same time what samson needs more than anything is to be known and there's something about him talking with god and then going to this place of like pseudo connection that i think is so powerful and so so deeply tragic why is it that samson is doing something that is so destructive at a time where he is so vulnerable. Like he is literally gone. He's gone to Gaza. He's gone to like the, the, the location of the Philistines. He's put himself right in the heart of danger, right in the heart of kind of behind enemy lines to lie with a prostitute in a culture where, you know, marriage is so esteemed as a Hebrew. Marriage is so sacred and holy. He's, he's, he's with a prostitute and it feels like this is... This is the point of the story that reveals Samson's deepest longing and Samson's deepest wound. And this is the, something that I feel connects to all of our stories. We all want to be known. We all want to be seen. We all want to be acknowledged for who we truly are. And some of us at different times have felt like a, a stranger even within our own bones, within our own soul. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making a leap here, but... I would suggest that some of our acts of self-sabotage are just purely acts of wanting to be known. And even if it feels like you're burning down a house, perhaps you're just burning down a house to get the attention of those who are in it. These acts of self-destruction are so often pseudo-acts of self-love, you know? We, we have this culture of self-love and self-care and so much of it is wonderful and, and such a, a beautiful thing in a time where conversations around mental health and, and, and soulful well-being are just so important. But I think we also get this tangled idea of self-love when we're really talking about self-indulgence or self-destruction where we're not really loving ourselves, we're actually putting ourselves in the way of danger. Samson was achieving a pseudo sense of comfort because of a deep sense of disconnection and untethering within him. And, and it ultimately lands him in the place of most destruction because through his relationship with Delilah comes his demise. Delilah was in it from the beginning, you know, so... The Philistines get to Delilah and they say, all right, figure this guy out. Tell us what makes him weak. How can we get around him? And she asks him a number of times and he, 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 he says something different every time. He says something that, you know, he knows isn't going to work. He says at one point, if you bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and like any other man. And so she does it. I mean, that's so specific, right? 
He's having fun. So she does that. And when the Philistines come to get him because they think he's going to be weak and defenseless, he's not. He just snaps out because he's, he's a he-man, right? Why does he do it? Why does he give her these false ways of being compromised? I wonder if it's his, again, his attempt to be so close to his original wound, which is one of feeling distant, feeling betrayed, feeling other. And I wonder if in Delilah, where he's so seeking love and affection, knowing that the only reason she's going to be with him is to seek out his demise. Well, that in itself is a point of connection. So he wants to keep it. So he keeps giving her ways to kind of betray him because even in her attempt to betray him, for Samson, for the little boy, there's affection. There's a sense of connection. It goes on, it says, Delilah says to him, behold, you've mocked me and you've told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. So she's desperate. And he says, if you put me in new ropes that have never been used, I'll become like any other man. So she does it. And guess what happens? He just breaks out. And she says, again, you've mocked me. And the cycle repeats itself. Until this point, she uses a word which I think just gets to the, to the crux of it. For Samson, she says, how can you say you love me and betray me? Delilah says that to Samson. She says, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these times. You have not told me where your greatest strength lies. And in those few words is all of Samson's baggage. Because I think that's what Samson's heart cries. How can you say you love me if your heart isn't with me? Mother, father, God, do you care about me? Do you love me? Is your heart with me or is your heart simply with my strength and with my duty as this divine tool of retribution? Are you with me? Are you for me? And it says he gets so vexed, he gets so at the end of himself, he breaks. And he simply says, a razor has never come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I should become weak like any other man. And she believes him this time. Like she, I don't know, maybe it's his tone. Maybe she can hear the pain and the fragility in him. She knows this is it. And so she goes, gets the, she gets the men, she gets the Philistines. And this is where it's really tragic. When Delilah saw that he had told her with all his heart, she sent and got the men, said, come up. And then she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the locks. And then she began to torment him and his strength left him. She gets him to lie on his knees like a boy lying on the knees of his mother. And she can't even do it herself. She gets someone else to do it. It's like she seduces Samson into his most fragile state of being a little boy again. And then someone else comes to do the act. And what happens next is the men come and they, they capture him and he tries to get up, but he can't. 
I wonder if this whole idea of failure and self-sabotage comes to a head because when we do it, when we do the things that we don't want to do, sometimes we just feel most like ourselves. It's just so familiar. We've just been there so many times. But it's also an attempt to go back to that original place of pain. Like Samson's greatest act of self-sabotage was giving away the key to his strength. And yet it was the thing that led him to lie like a little boy on the knees of a woman who he could at least believe for one night actually loved him. There's so much in this story. I feel like I've been going for an hour and I feel like I keep going for so much more, but I kind of want to, I want to, I want to wrap this up and I want to bring this back to us. There's, um, there's some writing in the New Testament by St. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. And he says, he says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why don't I do the things that I want to do? I'm going to turn it to it right now. I got, I got a physical Bible right in front of me. How mad is that? I'm not on my phone or anything. I got this actual Bible. So Paul says, why do I do it? And that, 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 that simple phrase, I think, summarizes so much of this episode and so much of our feeling of failure and feeling of like self-sabotage. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do? Well, Paul, and we touched on this in episode one, Paul uses this imagery, this illustration, this realism of a battle, a spiritual battle, a spiritual war going on. He says, like, there's this tussle within me. And it's spiritual and it's waging constantly between good and evil, between sin and righteousness, between God and between darkness. And it's happening within me and I'm confessing it. And he goes on, literally a few verses later, he goes on to say, but there is no condemnation. Let me read it to you. I'm going to get my Bible out and actually read this. Check this out. He goes, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Oh man, just let that wash over you for a second. There is no condemnation for those of you that are in Christ. I wish I could just like paint that on the biggest billboard in the world. I wish I could write it in the sky. There was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and she was brought towards Jesus. Just as a random woman. A random woman was caught in the act of adultery and brought towards Jesus. He had never met her. They'd never crossed paths before. And they brought her to him because the law said if someone is caught in adultery, they, they should be stoned to death. And so they say to her, they say to Jesus, well, what do you want to do with her? The law says, kill her. What are you going to do? And Jesus says, let the person who has no sin within them, let they, they, they can cast the first stone. And what happens? Everyone just walks away because they know that there's no one amongst them other than Jesus who doesn't have sin within them. And he says to a woman, who here condemns you? And she says, no one. He says, that's right. Now get up and leave your life of sin behind. We talked about sin on the first episode. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Was this woman, this random woman caught in adultery? How was she in Christ? Well, she, was, she found herself before him. She found herself standing before God, looking into the eyes of God. And all that she saw looking back was grace. All that she saw was a pers perspective that didn't define her by her actions, by what she did or didn't do. 
And he said, if you can believe that to be true, then you can get up empowered to walk away from the life that led you to this point. You are free, not because of what you have done, but because of how I view you. Your original goodness is what I see. It transcends everything else. And I'm here to remind you and compound that good news over and over again till you finally, finally believe it. And at your point of believing it, perhaps you might even help other people believe it yourself. So from there, then Paul goes on to say, and I love this. He goes, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption. You've received the spirit of adoption. That's what Paul says. And the spirit of adoption, it cries forth within you, Abba, Father. And that spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What am I getting at here, man? This is it. This is the crux of it. This is what Samson needed. Paul is saying there's a deeper truth. There's a deeper story within the story of your own self-inflicted condemnation and destruction. And that deeper truth is this. God doesn't see you as a tool. God doesn't see you as a tool to wield like a divine laborer that pulls out the spanner to smash against the stone. That's not who you are. God doesn't see you as a tool to be used. God sees you as a child. You're not a tool in the belt of a workman. You're a picture in the pocket of a father. And the spirit, the spirit of God is the spirit of adoption that cries forth Abba. Like Abba is a Aramaic word. It's a, it's a deeply intimate word that a child uses for a father. It's like daddy. It's like when Eden calls me dada. Paul, who said he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, the most learned, like legal practitioner of the Torah. He, he's, he's, he's crumbling into this heap of emotion just to say, daddy, that's how I respond to God. Daddy, Abba, father, daddy. And that cry of our heart transcends every other view that we could have of God. It's so intimate and it's so fragile. And it's the cry that Samson had deepest in his heart. This cry of, Daddy, Daddy, that's what we need. More than anything, we need to know that we're adopted, that we belong. I have a little sister who's adopted. And when I met this, this little girl... She was a stranger. She was born in a completely different nation. She was a stranger, but within within no time, she was she was my sister. She belonged. When my daughter was brought into the world, I didn't know her. <laughs> I didn't know who she was, this little human. But she became my daughter because of my love that I have, the love that I have for her. That's how she that's how she belongs. I love her. And Paul is saying, that's how you belong in God. He loves you. He loves you like a father loves a child. That's why you can call him daddy. You can be that intimate with him. Which again, I guess, is what makes the story of Samson so tragic. Is Samson never understood that grace and that mercy. And so, so much of this story for me is looking at grace with a new definition. See, Paul goes on in his writings to talk about this grace that is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. It is power made perfect in weakness. Samson's weakness was in his strength, right? Samson was weak because he was strong and his strength hid him from the world. And what I've learned about grace 
is it's my weakness that reveals me to the world. And as long as I hide because I'm weak, I live a life of shame and self-inflicted condemnation. But as long as I confess that I'm weak and acknowledge that grace doesn't just like pick me up when I fall. Now grace compels me to run and grow and become strong in a totally different way. Grace isn't just healing balm in your failing and in your falling. Grace is the fuel to do that which you thought you couldn't. Because grace defines you by a whole different standard. Grace defines you like the woman caught in adultery, not by what you've done or what you haven't done, but by the standard to which you are being loved. Samson ends his life captured by the Philistines. And he's, he's grossly mistreated. They gouge out his eyes. They humiliate him. He's lost his strength. Now his hair has been cut. It's tragic. And right at the end of his story, he finds himself at this kind of, I guess this party, this gathering of Philistines and blind, he reaches out for these two pillars. See, even in his weakness, he's brought out as a kind of freak show of strength and physical stature. And so before the crowd, he reaches out and finds himself between these two pillars. And the writer, oh, thinker, theologian, David Grossman, who beautifully reflects on the story of Samson, draws this image together of Samson finally between these two pillars that are so many things. His beloved, his mother, his father, his desire to be amongst two pillars of strength where he could actually be weak and he reaches out and he clasps his hand around the two pillars and he pulls them down in an act of violent suicidal murder and he pulls down the pillars and with it everybody else and I guess you know in the sense of the story fulfills that destiny on his life to destroy these group this group of Philistines it's, it's tragic and it's poetic and that's why I said at the beginning, I read this story and I've wept because what I see here is a man that is so burdened and so in need of grace just to have known from the beginning that the God you serve loves you, not because of what you can do, but because of who you are. And that is the wound within the, in the heart of every child that becomes an adult. And I want to bless you, my friends, listening to this, those who feel like failures and fools, those who perhaps in the company of Samson are longing for the same kind of grace that this story evidently, you know, doesn't testify about. I want to bless you with a blessing of grace. If you're feeling like you are destroying vineyards and you're feeling like you're heaping coals upon yourself and those around you right now and you're caught in a cycle of striving and self-destruction I want to bless you with grace I want to remind you of grace some of you forgot that grace actually even exists grace is real not just from the people around you but mysteriously and miraculously from God himself God who holds all things together God herself that holds all things together grace is real grace is true Grace is the most defining 
particle of the known universe, grace, is here right now. And grace is what strengthens us to do what we thought was impossible. So this, my friends, is a closing blessing of grace that I hope will lift your eyes and lift your head to that which you might have thought you didn't deserve or was impossible to receive. Here's one thing you must understand about this blessing. It is not for you alone. It is stubborn about this. Do not even try to lay hold of it if you are by yourself thinking you can carry it on your own. To bear this blessing, you must first take yourself to a place where everyone does not look like you or think like you. A place where they do not believe precisely as you believe, where their thoughts and ideas and gestures are not exact echoes of your own. Bring your sorrow. Bring your grief. Bring your fear. Bring your weariness and your pain, your disgust at how broken the world is, or how broken you feel, how fractured, how fragmented by its fighting, its wars, its hungers, its penchant for power, its ceaseless repetition of the history it refuses to rise above. I will not tell you that this blessing will fix all of that or all that is within you, but in this place where you have gathered weight, Watch, listen, lay aside your inability to be surprised, your restrictions and your resistance to what you do not understand. See then, this blessing turns to flame on your tongue, sets you to speaking what you cannot fathom. It opens your ear to a language beyond your imagining that comes as a knowing in your bones, a clarity in your heart that tells you this is the reason you were made. For this ache that finally opens us, for this struggle, for this grace that scorches us toward one another and into the blazing day. You were made for and fashioned by grace and although your road has led you at different times to terrain and landscapes that feel so distant from it consider this podcast as a homecoming in the company of failures and fools we stand with you and we say amen